Pride Nation 101. You have just stumbled onto Pride Nation 101. Queer music, stories, opinions, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Swimmer. Welcome. Today on Pride Nation, we are mad. We have two angry, fiery queers up in here. Yes, and we are planning on ranting. We're going to be ranting about the latest draft. On Roe vs. Wade from Mr. Alito. We're going to hear from Z Barron. And Emily Mills. And Roland. And Chad himself. Yeah, my abortion story. (laughs) Every time you say that, it's so funny to me. But first, we are going to take a little trip through the recent ignominious Supreme Court nomination hearing. There are many who believe that Judge Kavanaugh will be the vote that results in abortion becoming illegal in the United States. And I wonder if you're concerned about that. I could not vote for a judge who had demonstrated hostility to Roe v. Wade because it would indicate a lack of respect for precedent. What Judge Kavanaugh told me, and he's the first Supreme Court nominee that I've interviewed out of six who has told me this, is that he views precedent not just as a legal doctrine, but is rooted in our Constitution. No thank you for your perceptive opinion and vote, Susan Collins. And it's of a great, it's of great importance, I think, because it goes to a woman's fundamental right to make the most personal decisions about their own body. And as a college student in the 1950s, I saw what happened to young women who became pregnant at a time when abortion was not legal in this country. I went to Stanford. Um, I saw the trips to Mexico. Uh, I saw young women uh, try to hurt themselves. And it was really deeply, deeply concerning. During her confirmation hearing before this committee in 1993, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked several questions about her views on whether the Constitution protects a woman's right to abortion. She unequivocally confirmed her view that the Constitution protects a woman's right to abortion. And she explained it like this, and I quote, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It's a decision she must make for herself. When government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choice, end quote. At one point, our former colleague, Orrin Hatch, then the ranking member of this committee, commended her for her being, quote, very forthright in talking about that, end quote. So I hope, and you have been thus far, Uh, be equally forthright with your answers. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? Something that is really a major cause with major effect on over half of the population of this country who are women, after all. It's 
it's distressing not to get a straight answer. So let me try again. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? <clears throat> so, Senator, I do want to be forthright and answer every question so far as I can. Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question, but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda, because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law. No, thank you, Amy Coney Barrett. Thank you, Diane Feinstein. The president said that he would appoint someone who would overturn Roe. Uh, you pointed out to me that um, you viewed precedent in a serious way <clears throat> in that it added stability to the law. Do you view Roe as having super precedent? Well, Senator, I, 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 super precedent is a, a In numbers, uh, 44. It, it has been reaffirmed many times. I can yes. say that. Yes. Neil Gorsuch, quit your prevaricating. Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Samuel Alito. What's the problem? Are you being straight with us when you say that this draft opinion is only a draft opinion and is only going to apply to this one area of the law and it isn't going to be the opening salvo of an inquisition? Why is it that I don't trust you? We will go now to Z. Barron, self-proclaimed fat-bodied mother activist, Chicana, feminist teacher, and much more. I wanted to actually start with evangelical Christianity. And there's this misconception that they are trying to take us back to like bad times. And, and I put that in quotation marks only because it's not what they believe. And I think to like really understand like where our country is right now, we have to really understand the origins of our country and the, the fact that the people that are driving our country actually think that everything they are doing is to improve our society. As illogical as that sounds to everybody else, because the rest of us have moved beyond a society of oppression and a society of restriction, evangelical Christianity is founded on it and they believe at their, at their like, you know, through their indoctrination that returning to those better, pure times is what we're supposed to do. And it's a really dangerous indoctrination. It's a really dangerous um, way of thinking. And I think one of the problems that we do as society and like the rest of us, like those of us that are quote unquote liberal or leftist, one of the problems that, that we do, one of the mistakes that we make is we write them off as like, they're just crazy or like, that's so stupid. Or we try to logic <laughs> with them and that's not something that can be done because the indoctrination is so deep has never been allowed to think on their own who's just blindly following and so if we don't take it seriously we just keep looking in the way and we keep saying it's like a small population it's like a niche population that believes this meanwhile that small niche population is infiltrating our government and is creating all these policies and all these laws that will return us to their sacred times, to what they believe life should be like, where women obey their husbands, where, you know, women and children are property, where the man is 
the head of the household, um, where you can literally own other humans, you know, um, and that it's their God-given right as mm-hmm. men to do that. Um, and so I think that's a really that's a really foundational issue that we have when we're framing the, this situation where we're like, they're taking us back to the dark ages. And to those of us who've moved forward, we're just like, it's appalling. But to those individuals that are really deeply rooted in evangelism, they see that as returning to God. They see that as their mission, as their religion. And that's like, that is the piece that we are missing as outsiders. And I think it's really important to also understand that like, when we talk about Puritans and like the pilgrims that came over to like found this country, you know, the way that we teach it and the way that we learn it is like, these people fled their country for religious persecution. But I will never forget, like, I was teaching eighth grade history in 2004. This is how long ago this was. I was teaching eighth grade history and I got a student that was a transfer from Bristol from the UK. I, I glossed over, oh yeah, the pilgrims, religious persecution. And I was talking a lot about how as a country, we're still very Christian. I mean, think about when we have holidays and like, you know, trying to critically make the kids critically think about things. And the rest of the class was like, oh, fascinating. Like, you know, Sundays, like, you know, places close early, blah, blah, blah. They were finding ways in which we are not fully separate from church and state, which is what the assignment was. But this student, her name was Emma. She actually latched onto my glossing over this idea that Puritans were persecuted. And I'll never forget this. She brought me her history book from her old school where it had two pages. Like it was a two page spread on the Puritans being kicked out because they were too radical. Hmm. because they were trying to force their religion on everybody else. And my mind like exploded. Like, I remember looking at it and being like, wait, wait, what? Because obviously I grew up here and even as a teacher and I was like trying to present this critical thought for my kids, I still taught them like they were fleeing religious persecution because that's the indoctrination I had received. And it was the first time that I was like, I had never seen that before. And of course, this is 2004. So like Google really isn't a huge thing yet. You have like Ask Jeeves and you have like Yahoo questions, but it's like not, the the internet isn't as developed as it is now. And I have never forgotten that. And as time has progressed, now you can actually Google. You can actually find textbooks from German high schools, from, you know, high schools in the UK where like you, you can like Google to see how they teach American exceptionalism. And it is still in their in their education system that the Puritans were kicked out for being religious extremists. Mm-hmm. And so that shift, once you like put that piece there and you realize that the founding of our country is and has always been a group of people who are trying to force their religion onto others, so many more things make sense. You know what I mean? And that's, that's kind of what we're revisiting right now with these like laws and this like revisiting of our constitution mm-hmm. um, is going back to that root of where it started and who started it and who they defined as people, who they didn't define as people and the origins of our country being religious extremism. We're back at square one. It's really what it is. 
I've been saying a lot that it feels like we're being taken back to the dark ages. And then when the, the draft opinion came out and it turned out that Alito was referencing a 13th century English legal treatise, of course, it's incredibly disturbing. But it's even more disturbing when you figure out that England at that point was in the middle of the Holy Inquisition. And that was religious extremism. So there are things that we do as a society that we normalize as a society that like allows for evangelical Christianity to keep growing and breeding and to be normalized. One of the things that we really embrace is this idea of like, uh, be positive, positive vibes only, right? Um, the toxic positivity movement of like not acknowledging bad feelings, quote unquote, like not acknowledging sadness or anger or depression. Um, always, you know, look on the bright side, like that toxic positivity helps breed evangelical Christianity. That goes hand in hand with this idea of, I'm trying to be my best self, right? When people say, I'm working on being the best me, those phrases are rooted in change towards this amorphous, fake godliness. And it is, um, the, the people who mostly latch onto it are like white, straight, suburban women. Because the way that they define being a better person or the best person you can be is connected to Christianity. Being a Christian woman, being a quote unquote good Christian woman is being the best person you can be. And those two, you know, thought processes have become very mainstream. And it's very problematic because when you are saying I'm going to be the best me and you're that really is translates to like suppressing dark feelings, suppressing the parts of you that you're embarrassed about or the parts of you that cause shame. And that just is ripe for judging and hating those that have those same attributes that you don't like about yourself. And so you then persecute them because they are not ashamed of them. Mm -hmm. So it's like this cycle of, for example, like when for me, like my fatness really bothers some people that it doesn't bother me. And it's because they are fat phobic of their own bodies, you know, um, and that's then makes them feel like they can treat me as lesser than to like prove that I'm just less worthy than they are. And so that's what happens with this toxic positivity and this like idea of like being a better person is you set these like guidelines on what you think a good person is. And then anyone that isn't actively working towards that does not deserve your empathy, does not deserve to be treated like a human, does not deserve respect, does not deserve resources. And so it's what allows these like evangelical Christian extremists to completely dehumanize folks that are poor, women who are seeking abortions, people who are immigrants coming here from another country, you know, that desperately trying to come for a better life, because those things, those actions in their minds are not working towards this better, quote unquote, godlier, quote unquote, person. It's how they can also dehumanize Muslim folks, uh, Jewish folks, like insert any other identity, they can be dehumanized, disrespected, it, like devalued simply because they are not trying to attain this idea of exceptionalism that they have decided is what creates a good person. It's almost like, like we are worried about them taking us back to the dark ages, but they're worried about us taking them back to the dark ages. And 
they're dehumanizing us and we are not the worthy victims. And it's like, how do we criticize what they're doing without creating a situation where we're all dehumanized? Exactly. It's it's really interesting to be in this position where I do not respect the evangelical movement. There are obviously so many things that are problematic about how they believe and how they mistreat human life and who they consider worthy of respect and who they consider worthy of life, right? Like, we must worry about this fetus, but oh, too bad those 19 kids got shot. Too bad, you know. Um, you know, they they care about abortion because they're pro-life, but they'll vote against, you know, getting formula to all babies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, too bad babies will will starve because their mom is poor and you know, she's poor because she has low morals or she's, you know, she is lazy or whatever. There's like this morality that they have, that they place on people, right? This judgment that they place on people, even though their very own Bible says not to judge people. So it's like this whole hypocritical cycle. And it's really easy for anybody to be like, y'all don't even, y'all can't even get your story straight. You're just, you know, a little unhinged. You are, you're, you're having some like identity crisis, or I'm going to let you handle that on your own, which is what we're taught in this society. Like to just be individual as much as possible. Like, I'm just going to let you do you go ahead, be over there in your giant mega church, you know, and give 10% of your salary to your wild pastor who's known for trying to marry 14 year old girls, you know, like, cool, you guys are over there. I'm over here doing my thing. And that's it. We wash our hands of it. Not really ever trying to like understand how do these men get all of these followers? Like what psychological tactics are being used on these people? Um, what systems are in place to make them susceptible to the brainwashing because you don't get brainwashed overnight. That doesn't happen in one day. There are systems in place and a lot of those systems include poverty, even though they don't feel like they're poor. They, they distinguish themselves from other poor folks. Those systems include ignorance and lack of educational access, not allowing people to move, to be exposed to different cultures, different communities, different places. Because keeping someone sheltered and in the same like two mile radius their whole life means that their minds will not ever have to think of a different way of living. And what most of most people on the left do is they dismiss them as like, oh, these poor country bumpkins, these like poor people are like, oh, they're so pathetic. Or like, you know, we just write it off as like they're crazy. Like that's what you hear a lot is that they're crazy. And you really have to approach it from like, I don't think they're crazy. I think this is the only thing they've ever known. Mm -hmm. And I feel sorry for them. I do. I have a, I have a lot of like pity for these folks. At the same time, I have a lot of rage towards them <laughs> and towards their ability to infiltrate and to organize and to fund these politicians and then to like hold on to these seats for as long as they have been. Because a lot of these senators have been in these positions for 20 plus years because they have the same base. And so both things can be true. I can have empathy for these people and like feel sad for your, what I consider is a really pathetic life. And at the same time, I can be really angry at you for, for messing up 
the communal life, you know, it's for imposing your beliefs on everyone else. I can be really angry at you for preaching something and then not doing it because here they are upholding this supposed sacred document and they're not even adhering to what that sacred document says, which is do not judge, right? You have, you are nobody to judge. Roland and I keep coming back to the one person who is perhaps one of the most despicable yet really pitiful is Mike Pence. I mean, you got to feel sorry for the dude for all intents and purposes. He's queer and in the closet and he's not getting the love he needs and he's forced into some kind of relationship he really doesn't want to be in. And we see lots of historical figures like that who target their own identities. The parts of them that they're most ashamed of, they target as if to show that those identities don't apply to them. And I think that's very true of a lot of these evangelicals. The reason why they're angry is because they've been taught their whole lives that you're not supposed to, quote unquote, indulge. Don't indulge in like sinful things. And then you describe sinful things as like wearing a bathing suit or sitting (laughs) by the pool. You know, like those things are actually quite pleasurable. And when you've been taught that you feel if you feel any kind of pleasure, you're going to hell. It can make you quite bitter. You know what I mean? It can make someone really bitter if you're not supposed to enjoy some of the most enjoyable parts of life, you know. There are extremely scary times right now that we are experiencing. That said, we are really behind on organizing and on unifying. Evangelicals have been doing it for 40, 50, 60 years. The rest of us have not yet done anything to combat that kind of power that they have. And that's that's where we're going to be able to make headway. Is if we even just getting started, because we're way behind uh, getting started and mobilizing and not necessarily giving up yet on the system, mm-hmm. you know, because this is a system we have and we have to infiltrate it to change it. That was Z Barron. And this is Pride Nation 101 with Chad Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina. And we're going to continue our journey into the dark ages and the dark vortex of the Alito draft opinion on Roe v. Wade with a little look at the Holy Inquisition, which started in 1163 AD. This was a time of some serious, strict religious conservatism, not to mention some total ignorance. Anybody who was different suffered. Unfortunate people who ended up left-handed were considered to be the product of devils or witches, which could even mean being burnt at the stake. Families hoping to avoid this awful fate for their children tied their left hand behind their back until they figured out how to use their right hand. I can't even imagine what would happen to people who danced to funk in those days. The second annual Casper Forest Fest is coming soon, Saturday, June 11th at the Casper Community Center from noon until 7 p.m. Funkin', folkin', and bluegrassy music with Mama Grows Funk, Gene Parsons with Secondhand Grass, Daryl Cherney, Holly Tannen, and Diane Patterson. Speakers will include Sarah Constance Rose and Ravel Gautier of Mendocino County Youth for Climate. There will also be a pollinator garden and citizen science project presented by Isis Howard of Xerxes Society. There will be workshops, kids' activities, information booths, beer, wine, and fine food by Dalen and crew. All are welcome. No one will be turned away. Proceeds are going to the Coalition to Save Jackson, the People's Forest. 
Many of the workshops and the Citizen Science Project will be in English y español. Vamos a tener actividades y presentaciones en español y inglés para todas las familias hispanohablantes. Find more information at www.mendocinotrailstewards.org. That is the second annual Casper Forest Fest, June 11th, the Casper Community Center from noon to 7. Right down to the apple car. Black only thing that you can feel Faint Black grandpa's happy course of very that was Mendocino County local activist band Mama Grows Funk. A little bit more of the fun facts that will bring you from the 13th century, a long ago time, looked to by Justice Samuel Alito for guidance in his soul-searching attempt to overturn Roe versus Wade. Jews did not have that great of a time in 13th century England. In 1253, King Henry III enacted the Statute of Jewry placing a range of restrictions on Jews, including segregation and the wearing of a yellow badge. Massacres of Jews had been occurring across England for over a hundred years. And for the typical reasons, as Christians were forbidden to be moneylenders, Jews were, and then as soon as people owed them a lot of money, they'd get really mad, have a little mini pogrom, run them all out of town, kill a few, and voila, the debts were erased. This ended in the year 1290 when King Edward I wrote his Edict of Expulsion and all the Jews were kicked out of England. In the interest of total disclosure, I, Chad Swimmer, am Jewish. Also on the buy side of queer, but I am right-handed. So, oh well, you can't have it all. Let's hear a little bit more of Mama Gross Funk, then go back to our show.
You are listening to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Mendocino County and beyond. I'm Chad Swimmer with my co-host, Roland Corey Medina. And a band I cannot wait to dance to at the Casper Forest Fest, Mama Grows Funk. So Roland, I would like to hear you elaborate. Why does the right to abortion matter to an 18-year-old transgendered young man? Because I'm an 18-year-old transgendered young man. There are trans men who are attracted to other men. And there are trans, quote-unquote, NBs, which means non-binary people, who have working feminine reproductive parts. Maybe they don't want to be abstinent. Maybe they still want to use birth control and stuff just happens. They still need access to abortion. It's not just a women's issue. It's an issue for everybody. It's an issue for everybody, especially the unwanted children that would be brought into this world. I know what it's like to feel unwanted. I know what it's like to feel taxed by your family just by being there. I still feel unwanted some of these days. And I cannot imagine being born and knowing that you were not wanted. That is a terrifying feeling to me. That is a disgusting and monstrous thought. Not only is it terrible for the mother and the birth giver, it is terrible for the child. I don't want to do that to them. Nobody should say that they have to do that to the children and the birth givers. That's disgusting. That's terrible. I have had people tell me, well, I'm so glad I didn't get aborted. Like my family didn't want me. And what do you have to say to that? Please, if you're Gen Z, you say, I wish my mom would have aborted me. Roland, you obviously have some pretty strong feelings about this. I wish that my mom would have had that right, and she did, and that's great. If she didn't want me to be born, I would not have wanted to be born either. I don't want to do that to her, my siblings, to my father. That would have been terrible. It's another life that they're putting on the line, another life that they are risking, another life they have to provide for, that they have to feed, that they have to take care of and keep alive. That is so hard to do, especially considering any condition that the average American could be in. They could be poor, they could be hungry, they could be homeless, they could have been raped, they could have been victims of incest. Who knows what could have happened to them? Maybe they just had a condom that ripped. Who cares? No matter how intense the situation may be, you should not be forced to give birth. And some people make the argument about adoption. Just give the baby up for adoption. First of all, that's that can be terrible for the baby because foster care is in shambles currently. How many kids grow out of adoption? and turn 18 before they ever meet any potential family members. And some people don't want to be pregnant. It sounds terrible. When I was younger, I was terrified of getting pregnant because there was the idea of some parasite stealing my body. I know that is not what a baby is. That is not what a fetus is. But that might be a feeling that so many other people feel. They don't want to be pregnant. They don't want to have kids. They don't want to give the kid up for adoption. Just let them not be pregnant. Thank you, Roland. That was the testimony of Roland Corey Medina, an 18-year-old transgender young man, born with a uterus, or so they say. So, Chad, you told me recently that you had an abortion. Please elaborate. Well, obviously, I didn't have an abortion because I am a cis guy. But I've been thinking about it a lot recently. And when I was 19, before I was out of the closet, I was dating a woman, and we were very careful. We used two forms of birth control all the time. We were living on the road, and so we were together all the time. There was no chance that this could have been the pregnancy of another man. It was mine, and she got pregnant, and we both knew that we were young and not ready to have kids. We were living in a car. We were not making a ton of money, we weren't even sure if we wanted to be together. And lo and behold, soon after the abortion, we were not together. And 
I think about it now and I don't actually even know if it was a controversial thing. I was a pretty politically aware 19-year-old, but I was not a person who thought about abortion. I just knew it was available. And when this woman became pregnant and she said to me, she didn't know what she wanted to do. And I said, well, I'm going to support you in whatever choice you want to make. And that was it, that she had that choice then. And I said, I don't think we're ready, but if you want to have a child, then we could have a child. But I think that it would probably be a better bet to have an abortion. And that's what she did. We were living in Point Arena and she went down to San Francisco for a couple of days and she came back and we split up and I've seen her a couple times since then. But I would have a 35-year-old child, 35-year-old adult now. This is by virtue of choice that we were able to make this decision and we were clearly not ready. Within three years, I came out as a bisexual man and for 10 years mostly dated men. And I don't know if I would have felt comfortable with that at that point. And I definitely was not even at that point comfortable with me dictating my thoughts to the woman I was with, that I was just going to support her in whatever she decided to do. It is amazing to me now that we had that right and that we could lose that right and that we who were being as responsible pretty much as human beings could be. I mean, we weren't being abstinent, obviously, but we were using condoms and sponges and spermicidal gel. And we were, so three different things, and she still got pregnant. So obviously, this was an unwanted pregnancy. We would have loved that child if we had had to, but we had that choice, and I will fight for that choice. This was in the 80s, correct? This was 1986. 50 years from Roe v. Wade, 40 years from this, we are watching this choice crumble, this right crumble. Yeah. And I think about it, and as I have said on and off through this show, and I'll say it again, that the evangelical right keeps saying that adoption is the other option. And adoption is not easy. Adoption in some cases is really a wonderful, successful thing, but in often cases there's really massive attachment anxiety that's created in this poor child that has to be taken from one family to another. I mean, I do want to stress that there are lots of really amazing, amazing situations of adoption and great people who have had great adopted lives. But the other part of it is, is, is that there's a lot of evidence that a mother's emotions while a child is in the womb affect the emotional development of the child. But a larger picture for me is the thought that this child could be adopted by an evangelical family that is not going to let that child have the freedom of choice to be gay, to be queer, to be trans, to fall in love with the person that they are in love with. I know more than one evangelical family that has gone out of its way to adopt developmentally disabled children and bring them up in what seems like a very noble act. It was their obligation to adopt these children that nobody wanted, which sounds very noble. But two of those children became very clearly gay in their teenage years. 
and were squelched, were heavily squashed down and not allowed to be who they wanted and who they needed to be, who they are. Another clearly felt transgender, but didn't have the vocabulary to frame it in their own mind. This young person feeling trapped attempted suicide more than once and also was constantly on the verge of self-mutilation. And that, to me, is the intersection of adoption, abortion, and queer rights that is just, it's heinous to me to think that, that women could be forced to give birth to a child, which is then put up for adoption, into an evangelical family, which could conceivably try conversion therapy on that poor kid. And all of a sudden, the baggage gets passed on, unsurprisingly. And a lot of the people who actually are real child molesters, as opposed to quote-unquote groomers, anybody who happens to be different than what evangelicals would like, are people who were pushed into a box that they didn't actually fit into. And they ended up unable in their adult life to express their own sexuality in an appropriate, loving, and considerate way because they were so messed up by the world they were brought up in. And it becomes such a domino effect. It's difficult to watch. The problem is that it takes generations to break this apart and take it down, to break apart these cycles. Because what Roe v. Wade first was brought up in the 70s, we had progress for 50 years. Now people are wanting to take it away. That's ridiculous. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Grandparents pass it on to mothers and fathers, pass it on to sons and daughters. This ideology that you are not a full-fledged human being with rights. You cannot choose to be gay. You cannot choose to live as gay. You cannot choose to have your own body. You cannot choose to be happy. No, you have to live your life by these rules and these rules only. And the hypocrisy feels just enormous that you know people who support a woman's right to choose are often accused of being murderers. Yet the people who are accusing us of being murderers have no problem with an 18-year-old buying two assault rifles within a week of their birthday. Then when that 18-year-old walks into a fourth grade classroom, the problem is not that guns were available. The problem is, is that there weren't security guards standing there with more guns. That the teachers didn't have ARs in their desk waiting and have no problem with showering a country like Iraq with depleted uranium munitions, which has caused more birth defects in beautiful babies than any other kind of weaponry. Part of the problem is it's not really about the children. I can moan and whine about how crabby it would be to have a child and make them feel unwanted, but they don't really care about the child. They care about controlling women, controlling their bodies. We just watch them vote not to do anything about the formula situation. And they're fine with deregulation. And the deregulation of these companies is what has created a situation where they end up with contaminated formula. It's really sad. I watched a video recently of this 13-year-old who was picked up by a news station to go around to gas stations and grocery stores asking for liquor and scratch-off lotteries were a couple examples. And he was 13 years old. He just got his braces off, they say. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, you can't buy scratch-offs, young man. You obviously look 13. He goes to a private seller. At, I think it was very literally a gun show. Walks up to this man who then hands him a long rifle 
I think, a 22 caliber shotgun. He says, it should shoot pretty good for you. He says, I'll take it, hand him some money. He has now legally acquired a rifle. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that, at least for the people in control of the situation, this is not about the lives of the babies. This is about control over women's bodies and women's lives. listening to pride nation 101 queer voices music opinions and lives i'm chad swimmer with my co-host roland Corey medina now we are going to hear from emily mills family therapist and the mother of a beautiful baby we heard from emily and her wife alice about their pregnancy experience a few months back let's hear what she has to say about alito's latest draft salvo i think that there's just The abortion conversation is so layered and there are so many pieces that go into an individual making the decision to get pregnant, to end a pregnancy. And those decisions are related to mental health, to physical health, to class, to trauma. So if we take away the decision of a person who's pregnant to either give birth or to end the pregnancy, that just reverberates and goes on and on and on. We take away decisions for people to make choices regarding their career. We take away decisions that people have regarding the creation, you know, of family later in life. What really gets me is that most people who have abortions would love to have the kid if they had the resources to do it. Hmm. We don't provide resources to families. We don't take care of families. So individuals are forced to make incomprehensible decisions. I'm an addiction therapist, and I practice from a harm reduction perspective, a harm reduction standpoint, which means that abstinence is not really a solution for anything. We don't think about abstinence as an answer to drug or alcohol addiction, right? So why would we think of abstinence as a solution to reproductive issues like STIs or unplanned or unwanted pregnancies, right? Like when we're talking about reducing the harm of substance use, we think about all kinds of interventions from like education to supervised injection sites. So when we're thinking about abortion as a harm reduction, increase the amount of birth control that people have access to, increase the amount of education that people have access to, the jobs that people have access to, the housing that people have access to, make sure that that people have choice in every aspect of their lives. And I think that's very much how it relates to kind of why it should matter to queer folks, right? Like once rights start getting rolled back, it's a matter of time before we start looking at other rights, you know, that I enjoy as a queer person. My marriage is one of them. If the Supreme Court is overturning Roe v. Wade, what else will be overturned? That's been a conversation among legal scholars since this leaked um, decision. If we get into my very privileged position, right, I have seven embryos on ice and I don't plan on having seven children. So what does this potentially mean for me, for my family, for the embryos that we created, right? Probably will be okay because we're in a blue state and our doctor is in a pretty blue state. So probably will be okay, but it may force us to make some really uncomfortable decisions as it comes to our rights around family building. There's this great, I don't know if you guys have seen this, these TikTok videos of like, if we go down, we go down together. Whereas queer people, 
There are issues related directly to us and to reproductive health and to reproductive rights. But also, you can't look at one issue in isolation from all these other issues, right? If you want people to have access to choice, then make choice available across the spectrum. Hearing all about this, I didn't realize that amongst evangelicals in the 70s after Roe versus Wade, there was a lot of talk of this baby crisis, that there was a shortage of babies to adopt. The baby stock, and they were using the, the term stock, had been depleted because people were making the choice to not have babies. And part of me was like, well, some of these people are at least walking their walk and they are actually adopting children. And then I thought about it and I thought, wait a minute, these are the people who support gay conversion therapy. Right. Do I want my unwanted or wanted and unsupported child to be brought up in an evangelical Christian family? And apart from that, if, if these evangelical Christians were actually going to walk the walk, then why are there so many kids in foster care? Yeah. This is not about kids. This is about power. This is about control. Don't get me wrong. Like people have the right to their firmly held religious beliefs. Yeah. But so there are two issues there in my mind, right? There's the one issue of like, if this was about babies or kids, then we wouldn't have kids in foster care. We wouldn't have kids in the system for years and years and years and years and years, and then aging out of the system without families or without support, right? If the evangelicals really wanted to take care of kids, then that's where they would start, first of all. Second of all, uh, more and more adoptees are coming forward and saying, like, there's trauma related to adoption. There's trauma related to being, being given up for adoption, and if we have this narrative of the savior who adopts the unwanted baby. We're not acknowledging the humanity of the adoptee and of the trauma that comes along with that experience of being given up. Like from a psychology perspective, what we would say is that the, that initial kind of bond with a, with a parent or a primary caregiver is foundational to the way we create relationships for the rest of our lives. And more and more, the voices from people who, who were given up for adoption will, will say, like, that was a trauma, that having that initial attachment disrupted was traumatic. So, you know, there's the issue of talking about people like stock. And I think the other thing that's come out of the voices of folks who, who have been adopted is, like, nobody has the right to have a baby. If you can't have a baby that's so sad that's so sad and it's heartbreaking and it requires like you to do your own work but but having a baby is not a right so whether or not the baby stock is depleted like nobody has the right to have a baby there are lots of ways to parent to be involved in the in the upbringing of children that don't involve you getting your very own brand spanking new tiny human to raise as your very, very own. I want to remind people that we are talking to Emily Mills, who we spoke to a few months back about her and her wife's experience of having a baby. And also that Emily grew up in an evangelical family, right? Catholic, actually. My folks are and remain to this day devout Roman Catholics who 
who are very motivated and driven by their faith. And I admire that. And we have some really differences of opinion when it comes to particularly issues of choice and of what it actually means to be pro-life, mm-hmm. right? Like I think pro-life is pro-education, is pro-police reform, is pro-immigration, right? And that's a very different definition of pro-life from a lot of the kind of anti-choice activists who like to use that word. How is your baby doing right now? He is doing awesome. He he got he had he got RSV, which a million which all kids get according to our pediatrician. So he had a rough couple days, but he has bounced back incredibly well and he's so fun. He started walking and now he's running and he's starting to say words and oh. um he's <laughs> so fun. Nice. That's the other thing. Like as a mom who had to work really hard to become a mom, Alice and I worked really hard to have kids. And we love being moms. And I can speak for her when I say that. We have an awesome kid. I've, after my pregnancy, I'm a therapist. So I did a lot of um, training and education around both perinatal mood disorders, which are mood disorders related to pregnancy, but also to this concept of kind of matriescence, which is the idea of the kind of physiologic and psychological changes that come with becoming a parent. I love my kid. And I don't think I have ever been more more pro-choice than since I became a mom. Because this is hard And it is hard that I wouldn't trade for the whole world. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't have the right to make that choice for anybody else. Yeah. And you don't want an abortion? Fine, don't get one. Right? But people should have the right to access healthcare as they need to. And nobody should be able to tell them what healthcare they can access. That's another issue, right, for queer folks when it comes to like how if so, if the government's gonna say you can access you cannot access abortion care, what other health care are they gonna say we can't access? Yeah. Right? Is it gonna be IVF, which would drastically impact my family? Is it gonna be gender confirmation procedures or treatments? Like what other things are next on the chopping block. And these, you know, these three judges are all, they call themselves textualists or originalists. And the text of the Constitution, it doesn't even have the word woman in it. I mean, and this is like snarkily been on social media, but right, like the people who wrote the Constitution couldn't imagine a dishwasher. So (laughs) why do we think that the people who wrote the Constitution could accurately predict or understand or conceptualize what life would be like 200 years later. Wait, That's a dishwasher for them was a slave. Right. The, they owned people, yeah. right? So it's like you can't imagine a dishwasher and you thought it was okay to own people. That's not how the vast majority of people live now. Emily, what do you think life would look like for a child, teen, or an adult person who was an unwanted pregnancy and the mother could not get an abortion? I think that that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. It is striking to me that we're in the middle of this formula shortage, right? Uh As this kind of conversation about choice comes out, right? Like we actually, I shipped my sister, my sister formula in Rhode Island because they couldn't find the formula that they feed their baby 
in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, right? Wow. Like, so from Colorado, I went to like four different stores and found the formula that they needed and shipped it to them because they couldn't find formula. And these are parents who did want their baby and who are committed to their baby, right? We don't have systems in place to support kids or teens or parents as it is. That doesn't exist. I think that what we're staring down the barrel of is a humanitarian crisis. And as a, as a therapist, it's a crisis of attachment. When there is attachment wounding, anybody who's been around a kid or a baby knows how very sensitive they are to the moods and feelings of people around them. So a kid who grows up in a family where they aren't wanted or where their presence taxes the family beyond what it can actually support, the, the, the cost to that child is immense. We're not thinking of the mental health then of those teens or those adults. We don't have systems in place to take care of those mental health care needs or the physical needs, right? So again, I love my kid and I would not want to imagine the world without my kid, but also every kid deserves to be in a family that is A, ready for that kid and B, has the resources that, it, that are needed to support that kid. Emily Mills, family therapist, mother of one darn cute baby, an awesome queer wife. Grows Funk sounds pretty sinfully delicious to me. We want to thank you for spending the last hour with us on Pride Nation 101. We hope you'll come back next month and tune in on the first Friday at 7 p.m. on KZYX or Saturday morning at 10 on KCXU 92.7 San Jose. You can check us out at disquietmedia.blue. And if you've got some feedback or just want to say hi, email us at pridenation101radio at gmail.com. Also, you can stream this from the archives of kzyx.org. We would like to wish you a happy Pride Month. We'd like to say thank you to Z Baron. Emily Mills. Mama Gross Funk. Diane Feinstein. No thanks to Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Mr. Alito, number 45. Boo. But we would like to thank you. We also want to thank Cave Town for writing this great song, Boys Will Be Bugs, for being here with us. Thank you for listening. Hope you laughed a little bit. See you next month. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.